0: Hey guys, today we are here with Dr. Ed Cassis and he's somebody who will probably be a return guest a few times. He's somebody who, you know, as a doctor and throughout his different experiences inside of the medical community, he has really gained a wealth of both perspective and knowledge. On top of that, he stays extremely interested in podcasts, reading, And a lot of this, the just kind of current going-ons inside of the medical community. So he does a really good job of keeping his thumb on the pulse. And what's nice for us in that capacity is we can get a very different perspective of just the problems in the medical community as it faces us as patients or client-facing problems. And Ed and I talk about this all the time is, is it an industry problem? Is it a doctor problem? Or is it a client problem? And so I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Uh, We get into some fun stuff and here we go. Guys, today we are here with Ed Edmund, the General Cassis. So uh, Ed, tell us a little bit about uh, kind of your background with, uh, with work stuff and kind of where you're at today.
1: Okay. Well, first, pleasure to be here, Jeff. Thanks for the Yeah, invitation. excited to have you. Yeah. Yo. Um, so I am a, uh, I'm a physician. I'm a general surgeon as well as a thoracic surgeon. I, uh, I trained um, at Johns Hopkins for my general surgery residency and uh, in between my second and third year of my residency, I did three years of basic science oncology research at the National Institutes of Health. Oh, nice. When I finished at Hopkins, went off to MD Anderson, did my thoracic surgery training there, completed that in 2009, and then moved to Columbus and practiced uh, thoracic surgery with a focus on oncology from 2009 to 2014
0: at Ohio State. Nice, awesome. So, National Institute of Health. So, those are always those little NIH.org, I think, studies that you get to read. Exactly. Um, so, did you have one focus when you were there, or were you kind of like a uh, jack of all trades? How does that work?
1: Well, my, I have um, a pretty significant family history of lung cancer. Okay. That's, that's one of the reasons why I chose thoracic oncology as my, my field of specialty. So, when I was at the NIH, um, I was working in a surgery branch focusing really on molecular oncology to understand nice. what are the you know what are the genes that are getting turned on and off in patients with lung cancer how can we manipulate those genes in a way to either turn the cancer off or to make it less invasive and so I spent 3 years doing that kind of work yeah. um, before I went back into into clinical
0: practice and that kind of ties into what you're doing now a little bit
1: right yeah so a lot of what I do now uh, at J&J is, is working on developing the overall lung cancer and oncology strategy for the medical device group. Yeah. Uh, we were working pretty heavily with our, our pharmaceutical colleagues to develop really interesting and novel solutions for patients who have lung cancer. M- my personal belief is that 20 or 30 years from now we really are not going to be doing surgery on these patients. I do think we're gonna look back and say, boy, I can't believe we, we really used to do that. Yeah. Um, our our pharmaceutical colleagues have developed a number of very interesting drugs that have potent anti-cancer activity in mice. Okay. And but these drugs can't be delivered through the vein like a typical chemotherapy. Okay. They have to be delivered directly into the tumor. Oh wow and so we're working on, on combination therapies to be able to couple a device with a drug to be able to treat these patients.
0: So interesting. interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, and when you were at uh, OSU, you did a robotic surgery? Or you, you were one of the first, right, who had done a robotic surgery?
1: Well, I, I wouldn't say I was one of the first. I was the first to do a totally robotic Ivor Lewis esophagectomy. Yeah, so I was very, gonna say. Yeah. very specific. Yeah. I
0: didn't mean like general yeah. global surgery. I meant, yeah, sorry. I should yeah. have worded that better. Yeah, yeah so specific surgery.
1: I did a lot of robotics at Ohio State. Um, did a lot of traditional open surgery for patients that needed it. Um, minimally invasive surgery. Did a lot of work through the scope. So from inside the esophagus or inside the trachea yeah and then a lot of robotics so any any new technology that came down the line i would try and adopt it pretty quickly
0: yeah and what did you think about uh like new technologies as they first come on typically are going to be inefficient right are going to be like they're going to need to come a long way it's kind of like think about the first you know anything airplane cars whatever like took a while to kind of get that dialed in is that do you feel like that's the same thing when you start looking at like robotic surgeries and stuff where they still kind of coming along Absolutely, so the first robotic system was, was pretty clunky,
1: wasn't all that efficient, but Intuitive Surgical, the company that makes the, the, the da Vinci robot, really has evolved pretty dramatically over the years. Yeah. Um, but there's not only the evolution of the technology, but it's the evolution of the surgical skill yeah. to leverage that technology. So I look at my first esophagectomy, that one we just talked about, that one took me 14 hours. Oh wow. So, you know, that's a multi-step procedure. You're working in the abdomen and then you're working in the chest and you're cutting out a tumor and putting things back together. That one took 14 hours. And then after about case 20, I got it down to about six and a half or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's just, you know, troubleshooting each step. Yeah. I remember the first one when we were putting the esophagus back together. Every stitch, we just dropped a needle. We dropped a needle in the patient. Oh, so then yeah. you've got to you know move the camera, identify the thing, pull the needle out, and I would say twelve times we we, we couldn't figure out Jeez. how to prevent that from happening.
0: Yeah, but eventually we got there. That's crazy, and no needles left in the patient. No, You're no good to go. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Yeah, and so you think about that. I mean, um, you know, one fourteen-hour surgery. Um, I assume like. Is that all you do for the day then? Like you hit that one surgery and then you go home? Or kind of like what is life like? You know, we were talking a little bit before. Like after you get out of residency and you kind of go into those first jobs, like where do you start to, you know, I always hear you talking to medical students. Where do you start to gain some like autonomy, some schedule freedom, some um, some ability for normalcy? That starts, I would say, when
1: your residency is completed. Okay. Because when you're a resident, your time isn't really your time yeah you're on call when i was i'll give it when i was at md anderson i was pretty much on call 24 7. i would have weekends off but when i i when i was away and a patient had a problem yeah the the staff surgeons they wanted the thoracic fellow there Mm -hmm. and so i would get called in often on saturdays and sundays when i wasn't on call yeah when 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 i joined ohio state you get a lot more autonomy you can decide if I don't feel like operating on a Monday, I don't really have to operate on a Monday. So but the trade-off is you have all the responsibility now. Yeah. Before, if a pa- when I was a fellow, if a patient wasn't doing well, of course, I I had a lot of um, personal responsibility. Yeah. But the ultimate medical legal responsibility rests on the shoulders of the surgeon. Yeah. And so yeah, you get the autonomy when you're on staff, but it's all the stress with it, too. So, even though I wasn't on call and I had colleagues at Ohio State who were on call, you often don't sleep very well because you're, you know, you just did an esophagectomy that took 14 hours. Yep. And there's a whole host of complications that could, that could happen. Yeah, so, you do that case on Friday, and then the whole weekend, all you're doing is thinking about. God, I hope that patient's doing well and yeah. on the computer looking at their blood work. And yeah. if anything doesn't look right, then you think, boy, I better go in and maybe see this patient. for yeah. a little bit. So,
0: yeah, that's crazy. And, and that's what, you know, we've talked a little bit about just, uh, you know, the pressures, the, um, you know, the board having to discuss you, you know, if, if, you know you lose a patient or any of those things kind of come up and all the stresses that come with all that. So, yeah. um, yeah, and I know that that stuff, especially towards kind of the end of your time at Ohio state really had started to, to weigh on you and we discussed that. So, um, so what's some of that, like, um, what's that procedure like? So let's say, let's say you do an, um, I, I always mess that word up. Esophagectomy. esophagectomy. Yeah. There we go. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I always wanted to finish the esophagus, esophagectomy. Um, Let's say you finish that and, uh, you know, patient is is cleared and goes home but has a, you know, liquid-only, um, you know, diet and is told, you know, don't smoke, but they're there because they have a huge smoking habit. And let's say, you know, they go and smoke and end up, you know, dying, right? Um, what, uh, what does that then look like um, from your end?
1: Yeah, so the, we have a... Um what we call a morbidity and mortality conference that we would hold every week. And so if I did say in the previous week, I did 15 operations and 14 of the patients went home, no problem we don't we don't discuss those patients yeah. at all. but let's say someone develops a severe complication. Um, a patient dies or when I connect their esophagus, it leaks, doesn't heal properly. and so that case will get discussed in detail okay And so I'll stand up. And talk about the patient, show all the, all the studies that we did, talk about the operation, explain the complication. And then as a group, we have a discussion about what is it that could have been done differently. Yeah. Is there Could I have reconstructed the esophagus better? Did I pick the wrong patient? Should I have never operated on this patient? Yeah. Um, should I have given the patient chemoradiation therapy and said surgery is not appropriate for you? So we we certainly we go through that process with any any significant complication, and if someone were to go home and come back to the hospital, it, a month later, three months later, and that's a complication that will come up in, in the morbidity conference. Interesting.
0: Yeah. And then so so let's say um, those complications come, and you know it looks on your end like everything is right. Then you know you're pretty much just you know you're clear there's no no yeah. ramifications but if it is found let's say that you um let's say you did choose a bad patient it shouldn't have been somebody that had surgery um like what are your recourse for actions on that well there's no consequences okay there's
1: yeah. no 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 one will suspend your privileges or say okay. you, you can't operate anymore unless it becomes a pattern yeah, yeah yeah so there certainly are surgeons that have a track record of having poor outcomes yeah and um What's becoming more and more prominent now, especially in the United States, are these uh, safety teams that will look at the track record of of a surgeon. Yeah. And if it's not going very well, and you're having a lot of complications, they can they can force some type of remediation. They may say you've got to go back and um, do extra extra training, or you might have to be proctored. Yeah. Or they may say well, you just can't do that operation anymore. I Good mean, true. I know of surgeons who who at Ohio State. Who were board-certified cardiothoracic surgeons? They had bad outcome after bad outcome doing a particular operation, and they were just told, "You just can't do that operation anymore." Yeah, we we can't put the public at risk just because you feel like doing the surgery. Yeah. So, unless it's a pattern, it's uh, it, there's there's usually not you're not reprimanded.
0: Yeah. Now, of course, malpractice is a different yeah, situation. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you did something off common. So what then? Um, do all surgeons uh do that so like even if we're talking um you know a more you know a, a more basic let's say Terry rotator cuff mm-hmm. um are all surgery arms going to do kind of that same uh that same conference style where they look through surgeries if there's complications as far as i know Yeah. Uh, so when i was in a when i was in my residency
1: i rotated through a number of different specialties part of it is just to get you experience because yeah. not everyone knows where they really want to go for their career. So I did orthopedics and okay. I did ENT and I did thoracic surgery and they all had their ver- some version of a morbidity and mortality
0: conference. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, So what made you choose uh, surgery? You know, obviously you have a lot of different options as you're kind of going through medical school. Um, You know, you have uh, probably, I always think of them as polar ends, like from your family practice to your surgery. I always Mm -hmm. kind of think of those as like the two polar ends and everything else kind of meets in between. Um, And, you know, I know you said your family's history of lung cancer. Did that, was that like your major factor or what kind of played in with everything for you?
1: Well, you know, I've thought about this, A lot. I've always liked to work with my hands. Um, But I think more importantly is I've been very much um, enamored with just immediate um, feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I was, uh, my first knee operation, I was, I think, 17 years old. I had a meniscus tear and I couldn't bend my knee. It was just locked between my tibia and my femur and I I couldn't bend it I saw the orthopedic surgeon he says yeah we can you know we can fix this that's the only knee surgery I've had by the way that made any sense (laughs) yeah and uh I went to sleep couldn't bend my knee I woke up I could bend my knee yeah and I just thought that was really amazing that you could do you can mechanically help somebody yeah and that's what I really liked is that I knew that yeah, you know, if a patient had a lung cancer, I could go in and in about two hours, that cancer's out, and yeah. that patient has a pretty good chance at at yeah. at living. So, yeah. um, you know, I'd say that's probably the, the the main reason why I chose surgery, and then a number of reasons why thoracic surgery. One is I did have some family with uh, with lung cancer. My uncle died of lung cancer, and he was treated. Really poorly, I think, by the way that the news was broken to him and how he was told he had no options for care, really um I think um, callous and cold. yeah that stood with me, yeah, um and then it's just technically very delicate yeah. surgery. it's not anyone can do it. um it's uh, it's challenging. Yeah. it is it's challenging. and if you make a mistake, there's comp there's consequences to it, yeah both in the operating room which i've been there um and afterwards if patients have complications so yeah yeah it's uh it's it's delicate fine fine surgery so yeah yeah, that was it
0: yeah and so i think that's super interesting um about your uncle did you take that then to the patient care side of things when you were having to discuss that with people and, and those options or is somebody else discussing that and then referring to you because they've already decided on surgery
1: uh, I tried to take that with me. I wouldn't say I was always successful. Sometimes you're just... You you get so busy. Yeah. And you have a backlog of patients. I think I have a little bit more empathy now for the doctor that presented that news to my uncle than I, than I did before. Yeah. Um, because you just get... It gets hectic. You yeah. Know? And then... But there are times I really had to talk myself down from constantly running and say, you know, spend a little bit more time with yeah. this person. Um, I but I did try. Yeah. You know, I, I, did, I like I said I wasn't always successful with it, but I did try to sit and, and empathize and and but to you know, with respect to the question about the decision to have surgery. Usually if a patient had a lung nodule, whether they were diagnosed with cancer or not, or an esophagus problem, they they would send them to me. I would do the workup. Yeah decide if I thought surgery was appropriate, then we would have a conversation with the patient about yeah. how we do the surgery, what are the complications of the surgery, what you can expect from recovery and post-operative pain and all those things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's super, super interesting. And, and just like you said, I think you're such an interesting resource for people. And, I, you know, a little bit like when we talked to Sarah, but I think you you even more so, such an interesting resource because we talk about all the time about the client side of things right and the client facing side of things in terms of uh, you know the, the alternative end of that if we're having that same discussion is the client saying well this doctors came in spent five minutes and then they left and they told me hey you're having surgery and I left mm-hmm. and, and so <clears throat> the conversation is always so one-sided but I think the reason I ha- enjoy having the discussions with you about things is you have that other side of things and you understand the You know, the hours that have led up to that, and then the hour demand that's going to follow that, and then the stresses, just like you were talking about before. And it's almost like, um, you know, one of the things that I think I've seen from surgeons, especially, is um, the empathy is carried out in a different way, right? It might not always be so much in the face to face, but like you said, it's in the, I'm home checking the blood work on a Saturday afternoon when I could be with my family because I'm so stressed about the patient doing well. Um, so I think that it's, it's interesting to kind of see those, those different things. Um, you know, so, so let's talk about that. Just kind of general, you know, inefficiencies through that, that portion, what do you see as, um, you know, if we were talking about inside of the, the hospital network, you know, what do you think some of the biggest inefficiencies that are causing issues are? I think now you've, it's interesting. I think that you work with Johnson & Johnson and you work with um, Ohio State and, and, you know, Hopkins and all these places. I think you have such a wide breadth of, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and cancer research and actual application of full surgeries and so on. Um, so, you know, let's say, you know, now, now you're on, uh you know, the deciding chair, you know, whichever body that is, right? You get to start making decisions to change things. Where would you go first?
1: Well, if you look at um, hospital systems today, my, my main experience is, is as a surgeon. Yeah. And the greatest source of inefficiency that I've seen in hospital systems is operating room turnover. Yeah. So that is getting getting the or ready for the first case and then getting the Or ready in between cases. yeah and there's there is a whole host of moving parts that have to happen seamlessly in order for that to be efficient. yeah And at every institution that I've worked, because they were all public institutions, it is incredibly inefficient. yeah. So I could do. I this was routine. You'll laugh at this, but it's routine. I'll start my first case at seven o'clock in the morning. I'll finish my last case six or seven o'clock in the evening, and the actual amount of operating time was less than the turnover time. Oh wow! Yeah. So I could do a case from <laughs> seven to nine. Yeah. And my next case, my next patient, their anesthesia is all done. Yeah. But turnover, for whatever reason, is two hours. Jeez. Two hours, two and a half hours. So I'm done at nine. I'm ready to do my next case. Yeah. But I, we can't get started until 11.30 or 12 sometimes. And so that's I might crazy. have five cases to do in that day. Yeah. And so it's, um, that's where I would start. And I think part of it is that the incentive structure for the different team members yeah. aren't aligned. Yeah. Surgeons want to get their day done. Yeah. Other team members are shift workers. Yeah, I don't for, go home yeah. until my cases are done. Yeah. If that's at six o'clock in the evening or one o'clock in the morning, I'm there. Yeah. So my incentive is to operate safely and efficiently, but be available, get my work done, so that I can do whatever I can to shorten that turnover time. Yeah. Other team members work from seven to three. Yeah more if they do more it just means more work yep it doesn't they don't get paid more for it yeah it just means that well I could really move and get three three patients in from seven to three but I'm not really incentivized to do that so I'm gonna take my break and do these other things yeah I mean that would be the first thing you have to align the incentives for people that are working in similar functions yeah so they all feel like they're rowing in the same direction
0: yeah and you get things done Yeah, it almost seems like you would have, like, it almost seems like it should be like a contractor thing. It's like you have your team, it's your team, and you guys work as a shift. And when you are done, then you go home. Um, you know it's it, I always I always use the analogy it's it's paying somebody to, pay, to paint the outside of your house and one guy's taking it and he's going to get paid for the job and the other guy's going to get paid per hour yeah, which think one do you think's going to get done faster like you know so exactly. yeah that's super yeah. interesting yeah um, you know so now working at uh, at Johnson & Johnson what's like your um, what's your main focus on like a day to day basis I know you travel a lot and you're kind of involved uh, with I think some pretty exciting stuff so yeah
1: So I've had some changes recently of my responsibilities. We don't, let me talk about what I was doing sort of historically. Yeah. So I came in was, I joined J&J now. It's been almost, actually it's been four, it'll be four years in October. And I was asked to come in and lead the thoracic oncology strategy for the medical device group. So that was looking at patients with lung cancer and esophagus cancer and Really looking at them by the stage of this disease, yeah. and what are the what are the areas that we call in our organization we call unmet needs? Okay, so you know what is an area where there isn't a very good solution for these patients today? We might identify these unmet needs by watching a surgeon in China yeah. or at a conference. We created a roadmap of all what we felt were validated unmet needs for these patients from stage one disease stage one cancer to stage four and then we would just start looking for solutions for these unmet needs it was a lot of fun so this this drug device came from that we knew that drugs were being developed that had to be put directly into tumors and so there is a need to develop the device to be able to target the tumors and so sometimes that is uh, a need in the operating room so a way we, like to, um, we would like to explain it is that we would go and watch a surgeon do an operation. Yeah. And this surgeon is really struggling with this particular part of the procedure. And it's only because the technology that the surgeon needs isn't there. Now surgeons are great at working around problems because you, can only, you have to get the operation done. Yeah. And you can only use the technology that you have available. See, we often didn't even ask the surgeons what they needed because the surgeons don't know what they need because they they have a work around solution. Yeah. But you watch five surgeons in China and then you go and watch five surgeons in Korea and then go to the, you know, a couple in the states and go to Latin America and you start to see this pattern. Boy, you know, these surgeons are all struggling at this part of the operation. Yeah. So you're like, okay, here's a need. So then we start to identify technologies. Maybe some we can develop within J and J. Maybe others J and J. Can't do so. We would go out and acquire a company to help solve that need. That's that's the bulk of the work that I was doing is really trying to create a strategy and a roadmap to develop new solutions for patients with lung cancer.
0: Yeah, it's cool. It's like as a surgeon, like it's it's hard to say what you need if like nothing along those lines really exists, right? Like you don't know. Uh, what you don't have, if you're not even aware that it doesn't exist, so right. it's pretty interesting. And I know one of the big things that you are talking about is was the device itself that could target the exact tumor, um, like and create like a perfect outline of it for you, and then just like yep. bam, target it right away. So exactly, there's there's just so many things that could help facilitate care of these
1: patients. Yep. I think there's a great Henry Ford quote, which was something like, "If I asked." My customers, what they needed, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah. But it's not a faster horse. Exactly. It's, that's yeah. not the problem. The problem is I need to get from this point to this point exactly. as fast as I can. Yeah. That's the need. Yeah. The need isn't, well, my horse is really slow.
0: Yep. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's a perfect analogy. Um, yeah. I think that's, I think that's, it couldn't be put any better. Yeah. Um, I like that. It's really cool. Um, it, you know, and you've got to, you've got to travel a little bit. And I look at that as an opportunity. And I think that you've, you've enjoyed traveling a little bit more. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, some of your favorite places that you've gone, okay. and kind of uh, what that experience has been like. You know, obviously at Ohio State, it's like you're clocking in, you're going to Ohio State, you're hitting the surgery room. Now you're, now you're kind of traveling all over the world. So I think it's, I mean, it's been interesting to know you in both capacities and know, you know, see your frustrations and, and you on a daily basis, um, you know, and then now see you and it's like, hey, you know, I just got back from, you know, Hong Kong. And it's just yeah. like, if so yeah. So tell me a little bit about what that change has been like.
1: Well, it's, uh, I've loved working at J&J. Um, you know, there's frustrations at J&J. The one, the, the biggest challenge is when you're in the operating room and you're confronted with a patient, and a tumor in a particular location, you're the surgeon. There's no one to look at. There's no committee. Yeah, you've got to make a decision. Does this tumor come out? Does it not come out? How am I going to do it? Is it going to be with an open surgery or a robot? Yeah. And it's all on you. So you make the decision. You live. You live with the consequences. Yeah. At J and J, it's a little bit different. You know, it's a huge um, multinational organization with a lot of moving parts and the simplest decisions require several meetings and yeah. committees and yeah. trying to influence different people. But even you know that being said, it's been a lot of fun. And I agree the travel has been a tremendous opportunity. I mean I've been to Europe must be four four or five times now, maybe more. Yeah. Been to Asia three times, Australia, Latin been Brazil, Chile. Um I mean I the only the only I just haven't been to Africa yet and I haven't been to the Middle East. Yeah. And it's been great. Yeah. I love it. It's uh I've had the opportunity to travel with Catherine too, which has been a lot of fun. Um every place is a little bit different. You take something from each one. Like when I go to Asia, I I just when I land in the United States, I sort of kiss the ground and yeah. oh God, I'm so happy to be back home just yeah. because it's Culturally so different, so crowded, yep. um, polluted, it it, it just m- really makes you miss home. Yeah. Um, and then you go to Europe and you just appreciate all this history. Yep. You know, Catherine and I were just in Paris. Yeah. And, um, and I did a lot of work when I was there, but we had some time to travel around. And, you know, you're looking at buildings that are, you know, just... Yeah. <laughs> 500, 600 years old or yeah. older. Or older, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just is... Uh, it's. It puts the United States into some perspective.
0: It does, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think yeah. that's the best way to put it. When we were in Prague, uh, we went up and you, you take this like... Uh, I mean... I guess you'd call it like an elevator. It's Mm -hmm. almost like you go. I always imagine it was like a mine shaft car, and like you go up this tiny thing. It's going like Mm -hmm. two miles an hour, and you go all the way up this mountain, and you're kind of like at first you don't know. You're like, why the hell are we take? Where are we going? Yeah. And then you get to the top, and it like ducks down this thing, and then all of a sudden you're like in a castle, Mm -hmm. and you're like, what? (laughs) It's like it's crazy, and like it's all still original, and you see, and you get to sit up there, and I mean, this is like I I think it's like the castle of Prague, and it's basically for a long time, it's like. This is where, like, the royal family would either stay or would go during times of distress, which obviously, like, that area, there's been a ton of distress over the years. And so these guys have, like, these gigantic, like, cannons put into stone walls. And it's, like – and you start looking at it and you're, like, strategically – this would be impossible to get to. Yeah. Like you're just not taking this fort at all. And that's what the historian was telling us. It's like, even when like the city of Prague fell like they would forfeit, like they, the, nobody would ever take like this position. Mm. Um, and so, you know, as a history buff, I like geek out over that stuff. So I think just like you said, though, it's so crazy when you walk around the architecture and everything feels so different. And it's just because, you're, it just like you said it's like you start realizing like America's such like an infant it's such a baby yeah. all of the buildings like even our oldest buildings yeah. like 200 years <laughs> That's old exactly you know? right. it's yeah. Just like nothing yeah. so
1: yeah yeah it's been uh it's it's been great I think you know it just it's really interesting to see the differences among the different cultures you go yep. to Latin America they are so friendly yeah just so friendly you know you the, every everything. Whenever you see them, it's an embrace and a kiss, and yeah. dinners just last forever. Yeah, and uh, it's such a social. Yeah, it's communal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know, Australia is a lot like the U.S. It's a, they're a little more standoffish, I think. I mean, friendly people, but it's not not the same warmth that you get. So it's really been fun to yeah. to. To travel around and and you know see the differences of, of the cultures, I, I really liked
0: it. Yeah, and I think you like the Latin America vibe. Just when like we've come over for dinner, you like to do that. Yeah. Like let's do a big communal dinner yeah. and let's just kind of sit yeah. there together and do long dinners. So, um, so I think it's cool when that kind of stuff like uh, rubs off on you a little bit. And yeah. You kind of had said that um, you know that's kind of your family's background a little bit, and you kind of culturally bring that bring that food in and all that stuff. And so,
1: yeah, my my parents were both born in Syria.
0: Yeah. They immigrated
1: the year I was born, Um, and yeah, it's very it's unfortunate what's going on in the Middle East right now because I think a lot of that culture people don't really appreciate. But it is a very warm, welcoming social culture. Yeah, Um, food and you know drinks and it's just and now today you think about Syria or the Middle East, the predominant thing that comes to mind is. Yeah, you know, terrorism and yeah. conflict yep. and it's unfortunate
0: yeah yeah, yeah. 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 it's interesting and I didn't know much about um you know your family or family's background until we came over for uh for dinner that night and um and Nathan was really talking a lot about um you know grandma and grandpa's yeah. uh, food mm-hmm. and just how he goes there and they just they're trying to put some meat on his bones and <laughs> fatten him up a <laughs> yeah. little bit yeah he loves it so but, does Julia too yeah. I mean,
1: when they uh when when they visit it's they, they feed those kids. Yeah.
0: that's a great, great segue to talking into Nathan and Julia. So, uh, for those of you guys who don't know, Ed was really the champion of kind of our, our youth program. So, um, you know, at the time, I think this is probably right around the time where you were transitioning between Ohio State and J&J. It's about, Mm -hmm. about right there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he had had. I think at the time, um, Nathan was maybe eleven, yep. and That's Julia really was yeah it was nine. probably nine. Yep, mm-hmm. and had some some interest in you know them getting started and kind of saw the the need or the desire for that and went and got your CrossFit Kids certification mm-hmm. after your, you'd already had your level one, mm-hmm. and um, and then kind of started along and started down that path, and then as we kind of transitioned, you started at J and J, then we kind of handed the program off to Marie and kind of went from there um so nathan and julia much like yourself are kind of like they're like our founding um you know kids and now teens members and it's been really fun to watch when you look back at the pictures it's like it's actually hilarious how like like nathan was like shorter and like just didn't wasn't quite as athletic and Mm julia has become like a like a fully blossomed woman now it's like, and she's like, she's like taller than Nathan. (laughs) It's like, it's crazy to see. So, um, so tell me a little bit about just like their journey, uh, both just through CrossFit. Um, but then how they've kind of utilized that to, I think build, you know, a little bit of discipline, um, you know, some really good healthy habits. So just tell me about how you feel like that's affected them.
1: Well, there is, um, my kids are the great kids, good students, Good athletes, and I think CrossFit has been instrumental in getting them to to where they are because it does require discipline. And what's great is when you when you're doing CrossFit as a preteen and into a teen, your body's maturing, and even without CrossFit, you're if you're working out a bit, you're going to get better and you're going to see gains. Yeah. But you couple it with CrossFit and it just becomes this reinforcing cycle yeah. of, you know, I am getting better at pull-ups I and it just feeds itself. You know, I look at... I look at Julia mm-hmm. um, just constantly working on those bar muscle-ups. Yeah. And just... She hit the bar muscle-up and it just feeds into her... Um, you know, her... Self confidence yeah. and um, her strength as a as a young woman, and I look at Nathan, who at the open was afraid to be upside down. Yeah, remember? I yeah. mean, he was oh, doing yeah. handstand push ups, but he did not want to try. Yeah, like one walking. at a
0: time. Uh, yeah. And then
1: that's the other. I mean, the thing about our community is that we've had so many people, Chris Lanning and others, that were just really encouraging. Him. Mm. And now every day after the gym, he's practicing his handstand walking and yeah, finished
0: two hundred feet in that yeah. workout the other day. Yeah. 200 feet so it's been
1: walking. it's been great. And I you know it in terms of discipline, it's made them, I think, better students. I think it definitely made them better athletes. And it's translated into their nutritional discipline too. Because yeah. they they see that boy if I'm working out really hard, if I want to continue to improve, I've got to have these nutritional parameters that I work on every day and they log every day. Yeah. You know, they log their meals and they're very careful and, you know, they're not so strict. Like they will certainly enjoy certain things, but, oh, yeah. and, um, it's just been great for them. Yeah. It's been great for them. So i um, proud of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, and you can see, I think, um, you know, it's a prideful moment for, obviously for you, but a super prideful moment for me. I love watching, Watching Julia start to attack, because at first it was, it was like pull-ups, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, pull-ups becomes like a chest bar And then a yep. chest bar becomes like a bar muscle-up. And then mm-hmm. she just started working and working and working. And the cool part was is, you know, she really, she was so open to help, to processes, to do this. Mm-hmm. And then you look and she followed through. And I think that's the big thing is she was coming in on her own time And I always like, that's always amazing to me. Like I was doing the dumbest shit. Like with my time, once I stopped playing sports, you just like look around. It's just like, I was just, Mm -hmm. you know, going around just being an idiot with my friends. Like there's no, nothing tangible that I would say taught me the development of a process, like putting, putting a process in place consistently and really putting your head to the grindstone and just working, working, working until you accomplish your task. And so I loved seeing them come in kind of on their own time and just watch her, you know, she put the band up, she'd start the kipping work, and she'd start practicing her bar muscle-ups, and then, sure enough, you know, there it comes, and you get your first bar muscle-up, and it's just, like, like, you know, I think I told her that day, just, like, realize that, like, you got this because of the hard work that you put in, it's just, it's so cool to see um, that kind of work ethic come, because it's something, and this is what, you know, when I, when we first started, you know, you know, I was kind of adverse to having you know, younger people, kids and teens and stuff inside mm-hmm. of the gym. I was just like, you know, we're kind of an adult atmosphere. Um, you know, I have a notoriously, you know, kind of dirty mouth and um, Maria is notoriously inappropriate. And so, um, so, you know, we kind of have like this, uh, I had this thought or idea that uh, how it would kind of change our facility. And then I started to really watch the teens and watch that process and that development what I started to find is um, adults have this mentality when we first start with them of I can't Mm -hmm. right it's almost like they've been forced into like submission and believing that they are just incapable and what I started to find with the teens is they always think in their head even if they can't do something they always think they can like so another teenager hasn't put in a dime of work on bar muscle up might see Julia do a bar muscle up one day and be like, oh, like I, well, I can do that. And then they go up and try and then realize like, oh, I, I can't do that. Like, why can't I do that? And then they sort of get into this boat where it's like, I want to be able to do that. And then they get super motivated to like, do it to learn the process. And it's just a different mindset. And I think it's so cool to catch them at a stage at an age where they still have that, where they still have that, like, Uh, that hunger to develop in that capacity so I think it's been really cool to see and and now they've really become you know leaders they're leaders of that class and um, you know I think Julie's developed um, you know some good relationships you know Ryan, Nathan I saw him at a football game earlier this year Um, and so I think that that's um, you know that's been kind of a cool like now as the program grows introducing them to you know different kids different age kids different you know male, female um, you know Dublin and Worthington and like all this stuff that like otherwise is like a barrier to getting to know these other people who might be you know a really meaningful part of your life so it's really cool thank you for helping us start the program um, so as you kind of go now so Nathan's uh, still playing baseball is Julia still playing softball she is and then yeah. is she playing anything else no nice no, so they
1: they do they do uh, baseball and softball Usually throughout the year. Julia's yep. doing fall uh, fall softball now. Nice. Nathan's team, so Nathan's moving to a new team this year. Okay. He used to play for the Dublin team. Yeah. Uh, this year he's playing for a team called Ohio Elite. Okay. They put together a fall team, but if you remember, Nathan had that back injury, yeah. so he's letting that heal up. Yeah. But it's CrossFit and baseball softball. Yeah. And it's a toss-up about which one. If they had to choose, yeah. if push came to shove, and you had to pick one, yeah. it wouldn't be a very easy decision for either one of them. They yeah. both love doing
0: it. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's cool, but I always try to make sure that like we keep let's keep let's keep focus. Like we can get a, we can get a full scholarship <laughs> if we <you> play these, <laughs> yeah. these real sports. There's no full CrossFit scholarships yeah. yet, so let's make sure that you know, you know we can save our parents, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and set you up for the rest of your yeah. life if we can. That would be great. So um, so that's always good. Awesome. So, uh, and then kind of trekking into you know your CrossFit journey now. So, um, you know, always when I think back to original Ed, I always think double unders because that's the one thing that really sticks with me when you first came. So, um, so you started at Core Tactics, right? And uh, you had started your CrossFit journey there. How long had you been doing it there before you kind of uh, switched gears and came over to Friendship?
1: I don't think it was a year. It may have been around a year. Yeah, and it was a great.
0: Introductory
1: program for CrossFit. Yeah, I didn't really know anything about CrossFit, um, and so I just thought, hey, this looks interesting. Let me join, and I did like it. Yeah. Um, uh you know, learned some skills, was got fitter. Yeah. but then I was looking for something a bit more. Yeah, and then I was introduced to to friendship, and I remember, you know, at Core Tactics, we didn't do a lot of barbell work. Yeah, it was a lot of gymnastics and. And I remember that first day walking into friendship, you remember you still had that tower. Yeah, the, the mezzanine. The mezzanine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I walk in, I introduce myself and I say, Can I watch a class? I'm sitting on the steps and I don't know, what some barbell thing. Yeah. And it just kept slamming on the floor and I'm thinking, What what is this? This yeah. is I don't know that I'm gonna like this. And yeah. then I joined. Yeah. Um I still remember our you know, at the time it was sort of a one session. Yep. Uh, are, can you do this kind yep. of thing you, yep. we were talking a bit and I said yeah I've been doing it for a little bit you watched me do a couple air squats and a few other things and you said okay you're, you're good yeah and uh, and then the first class was, I think it was back squatting or something. I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to like this. Yeah, so was, yeah, yeah. It's been great. And here
0: you are. Now you love the barbell. I love the barbell now, yeah. I got
1: excited yesterday, so I love the
0: barbell. Yeah, and you, uh, you know, we really, as a coaching staff, I think, became, you know, fell in love with your, your process and your work ethic towards uh, towards DoubleEnders when you had first came. I want to say, I don't know if it was linked to the Masters or I don't know what it, had what it created it. Um, but there was something, something kind of came up one day and you couldn't do, couldn't do double unders. And I think it like, it, it like drove you crazy. It like did. you could not. And so just every day you'd roll in, you'd have your jump rope, you'd unwind and you just, and you just go to town and you just worked and worked and worked still to this day. It's like a toss up kind of between you and Jesse for who really like put down double underwork more than anybody I've ever seen
1: I just couldn't get them that easily yeah. it was just it was frustrating me. Yeah. I did them in the garage I did them constantly yep. constantly yep. and for some reason I couldn't get the I couldn't figure it out Yeah. and I just said the only way I'm going to figure it out is the key. it's not going to just come to me overnight so yeah. yeah I remember you helped me and yeah, uh, yeah Jay and
0: Yeah, and we all had our different systems. Jay was like a cheater because he he did competitive jump rope uh, team in in elementary school. Um, But, you know, I was the same way. I really struggled with him, and I'll never forget the day. CrossFit.com, we were following it in 2009, and Jay had just started with me, and, you know, I knew that there had been some jump roping stuff. So I had this old boxing jump rope, and it was heavy, Mm -hmm. and, and we still used it for a long time. It was sat at the gym forever, and... CrossFit.com posted up a workout with Dubliners, so I click the video, and I watch him. and you know, he talks about how it passes under your feet twice, Mm -hmm. and all this stuff, and I'm like watching it, and I'm like, never heard of this, and so I'm like, so I go out in the garage, and we had been following main site, like religiously, we're going to do it exactly to a T, and then I think we did like a little bit of weightlifting work, Mm -hmm. and we go out in the garage, and you know, I tried, and maybe I gave it like five minutes, and Jay shows up. And I go, dude, this move is bullshit. Like, they just put this on here. I'm like, I am like sound like Maria all the time, right? This move is bullshit. Like, I can't even do this. This is ridiculous. Nobody can do this. It's so hard. <laughs> and Jay, like, whips his jump rope right out and starts doing them, like, backwards under yeah. his legs and all this stuff. And uh, it just was ridiculously easy for him. And so, I was just, so then it just made me even more mad. I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, well, okay, I guess people can do it. So I started working, but I just couldn't. Same thing. I just couldn't get them. And so I found this system online that was, like, Uh, you do five sets of five every day. Mm -hmm. And then once you achieve five sets of five, then the next day you move to five sets of six. Mm -hmm. And then if you achieve five sets of six, you move to five sets of seven and then five sets of eight. And every day you just add one, right? So it's super digestible. Uh, And then once I, I think I got up to like, uh, like 26. Mm -hmm. And then main site came out with another workout that I'll never forget the workouts. First workout I ever completed with double unders uh, it was five overhead squats at 95 pounds. You walk a hundred feet overhead with the barbell oh, okay. and then you do, uh, I think it was 30 double unders and, uh, and I did all the double unders that day. And so I was like, that was same thing. Like you have that accomplishment, that oh, like, sense of pride. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I always, I always love seeing people kind of t- attack that. Uh, so you came over, um, you know, you knocked out some masters. Uh, you know, you were a you were a winner of the masters, right? I think you I won think your so. age couple, division. Yep. Couple years ago. Yep, yep. Yeah. And so uh, a masters champion, and uh, and you know, for a while, you're really you're really pushing into that competitive realm, right? You really wanted to, you know, you hit. Uh, Do you hit a two two hundred pound snatch two twenty five? Yeah, two twenty five. You worked uh, really hard on. Followed, uh, you know, Kara's eight weeks, I think, Correct. a couple twice. times. Twice. Yep, twice. It's a really hard Olympic lifting yeah. program. Um, yeah, very... that
1: was, I couldn't keep up with the nutrition. I kept losing weight. It yeah. was it was two hours a day, five days a week yep. of, of Olympic lifting and heavy squatting. Yep. And I finished it. I think my snatch went from 185 to 205 after the first eight weeks. Yep. And then after the second eight weeks, I went from 205 to 225. Yep. And same thing with my, my clean and jerk ended up getting up to about 275, I think. Yeah. After, after that, but I lost weight. Yeah. I yep. couldn't keep up with it, but that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. 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 And that was, um, that was, you know, Jason Grove just kind of experienced a similar thing over squat cycle. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I just don't think people understand when you are lifting weights in that capacity. It's the, the. Your metabolism metabolism just goes through the roof, yeah. and feeding that much and that much protein and all that stuff is really hard to keep up with. And so that's why you see a lot of Olympic lifters are typically like a little bit doughy, yeah. because you have to kind of eat some crap to be yeah. able to get the calorie yeah. amount in to not do that. So, that. Yeah. Um, so that's been kind of a fun trek for you. And then uh, then you kind of halted in and had some knee issues, right? And so um, so kind of talk to me a little bit about what the knee issues were and kind of what uh, what procedures followed and kind of how life's been you know since then.
1: Yeah, so I've had, um, I've had four knee surgeries now, all meniscal tears. Yeah. Um, two on the left, two on the right. Um, the only one that was valuable, that I really believe helped me was that first one that I talked about earlier. Yeah. The other ones, I had some pain in my knee, some swelling in my knee, saw the orthopedic surgeon. You know, they tell me that I've got a meniscal tear and that a scope would, would help. Yeah. And so I said okay. And I shouldn't have been so naive because I'm a surgeon, I should know better, but yeah. I had them done and I would say my knees are certainly no better. Yeah. Maybe a little bit worse. And so I I regret having those other 3 because I don't think I ever should have had them. Yeah. Actually, after the last one that I had, I would say that my other knee, the mobility in that leg is is worse, yeah, and you can see it when I squat. You know I sort of lean. yeah, you I yeah, list on sure. one side. It's yep. just I don't have the same degree of mobility, flexibility in that joint that I should.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so let's dive into that. I mean, so surgeon, surgeons, you know, we always uh, you know say you know butchers like to cut meat, which is kind of a, a gross way of saying that same thing, but um, you know that's why you. It's why you go to a surgeon to get surgery a yeah. lot of times, and so, um, so why do you think you know, uh, and I think this is super common, right? This is knee issues, um, shoulder issues, back issues. This is all stuff that you know is prevalent just as a human, right? We're utilizing our body, like, even if you're just sitting around at your desk all day, you're probably gonna have some knee and back issues, um but it does seem now that we get a lot of, a lot more conversation that goes very quickly to surgery. Um, you know, and, and it seems like, and like you said, even you, it seems like a lot of people are just really blindly taking that advice and not, not diving into things, not looking into, you know, a full bout of, you know, Full physical therapy and appropriate recovery tactics and stuff before they go in and test that. Um, so you know, where do you think that culture has come about from? And you know, how do you think? You know, how would you recommend to yourself before you start going through maybe some of those first scopes or, um, you know, what would your what would an alternative path look like for you? I think
1: for for the most part, surgeons are trying to do a good job for their patients. I I have no doubt. Yeah. But surgeons are also incentivized to do procedures. You know, make a good living. Yep. Hospitals are paying your salary. You have to justify your existence to the hospital or they'll say, hey, you're not earning your keep. Yep. Go find a job somewhere else. Yeah. So that's part of it. And a knee scope is a bread and butter procedure for orthopedic surgeons. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying some people don't need it. Certainly, some people do need it. But there's... Mounting evidence, and I've sent you some papers yeah, for sure. that show that it doesn't it doesn't do any good really. For the majority of patients, there's no benefit. Yeah. The first thing I would say is you go see your surgeon. Your surgeon recommends something for you. Um, seek out a second opinion. Find someone like me or um, other medical professionals in the gym if to help you do a literature search. Yeah, because. That's hard. That's hard for a layperson. Yeah, for sure. To go and and look at actual published data. Yeah. Not what you find on Happy you know post. Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But on published data, yeah. and to have someone say, okay, you know, here are two papers that you should read. Just read the abstract. You know, just the top part. You don't have yep. to go through all the methods. yeah. Let's get the conclusion. And it'll just give you a sense of now. There are some procedures that is no question that people need. If you have a lung cancer and it's an early stage yeah. lung cancer, you need surgery. Yeah, for sure. There, there's nothing else right now. Yeah. But for something like a knee or a back, you really want to understand what's going on with your, with your problem. And Get a sense of um, what the MRI really shows. And if you read the report and you don't know what it means, find someone who can help you. Yeah. Someone other than your surgeon. And then, you know, dig into the data a little bit to say, hey, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And, and if it's something that is not severely limiting your function, if it's just a pain issue. So, you have some pain in your knee, you have an MRI, the MRI shows that you have a meniscus tear. It doesn't mean that the meniscus tear is causing your pain. It could yeah. be something else. Yeah. So, try physical therapy, you know, try some other things before you go down that once they remove that cartilage you can't get it back Yeah. when it's gone it's gone yeah
0: yeah and that's what i think is so interesting i think uh, the the feedback the the discussion point like when you tell somebody they've got a torn ligament or a torn muscle they're so i mean it's 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 this like oh my gosh there's something wrong with me i'm broken yep. i need it fixed yep. and so that mentality is, I think, kind of where the client end comes from, you know, where they, where they start to see that. Um, but a lot of times, you know, when you, when you tell people, um, you know, like, no, you don't really need that, you know, or like you can strengthen up your muscles so much around that that it takes a lot of the pressure off of that. Um, you know, or we have people who had, you know, torn pecs and torn bicep tendons and they just were like, you know what, like I'm just going to decide not to get them reattached. And they were fully functional. And I mean, Drago is a great example of this. Drago had a torn pec, you know, no attachment in, and uh, and because of it, had this like ridiculous shoulder mobility. Mm-hmm. And so he overhead squad like three sixty five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like yeah. so you look at that, and it's like you know, obviously, you know, it's not optimal. He couldn't bench press like two twenty five, um, you know, and he struggled with like push ups and planks and some things along those lines. Um, but you know, one benefit and one detriment. So, right. so yeah. So, yeah, yeah my I'm,
1: brother, my brother had a meniscus tear. Yeah. And he he called me just a few days before a scheduled surgery, and I said, "Don't have that surgery." I asked him, "What?" I didn't know about. It. I said, "What's? Tell me what's happening." He tells me, "I said you don't have the surgery. Yeah. Don't have it. Yeah. Just go get physical therapy." And he did. He canceled the operation. Yeah. He has some physical therapy. It doesn't hurt him anymore at all. It, yeah. it, 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 it It's a non-issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's been amazing to me to see, you know, Clark really comes to mind. There's been a few instances in the gym where, um, you know, people have had recommended surgeries or have had, um, you know, recommended, you know, take eight weeks and do nothing, yeah. you know, which it, that probably kills me even more than surgery. Yeah. Um, you know, and and they'll they'll take that advice and they go, and then there's been a couple of people who have been recommended that, and then they will you know not accept it, and they will really dive into you know full on physical therapy. They'll stick to the process. They'll listen to Jenny or Nick, or there's a couple other you know physical therapists inside of like our, our kind of CrossFit realm and and then you see him and they just you know Clark doesn't really experience shoulder pain at all anymore and um, you know you'd have to ask him what he actually had torn cuz i'm pretty sure he had some torn muscles inside of his rotator cuff and stuff but torn ligaments or dead. and so it's it's interesting to see um, kind of how people take that di- those different pieces of advice and kind of where they where they run with it so
1: i think so i Clark worked hard though Clark, yeah oh yeah Clark had, really hard. had um
0: <laughs> Would have those little
1: change plates. Yep. Sit in the back weightlifting area oh, yeah. and just do shoulder mobility stuff. Yep. I think part of it is that you have a a culture of people in our gym that are not averse to working hard to make something better. Yeah. I think oftentimes the population at large is looking for a quick fix, whether that's a surgery to make me feel better or yeah. a pill to get my blood pressure down. Yep. I think there's a bit of a different. We've selectively biased a group of people in our gym that are willing to go through some extra work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's uh, you know I was listening to um, a business podcast the other day, and the guy was talking about how a lot of businesses now are going, you know, going back to originally. You know, you look at CrossFit; it's a great example. As CrossFit really is kind of a throwback in fitness, right? It's like, you know, people always will come and see the ropes or see the pegboard and you'll get guys in their 60s, 70s, 80s. And I remember when my gymnasium had this growing up for gym class, right? And it's a throwback. The the rings, the barbells, the dumbbells, um, you know, it's not cables and $6,000 machines in a row of them. Um, and so, you know, what the conversation was, was how difficult it is for businesses now because, you know, taking surgery is probably the best example because basically, you know, everything is is a a business transaction is very simple. It's, you know, you have a problem, right? I have a solution and that solution then is going to be time and money. How long is it going to take for me to reach the solution to my problem and how much money is that going to cost? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the, that's the transaction, right? And so when you're competing with, um, you know, surgery, and I tell you over here, you know, you're going to have to, you know, pay Jenny and you're going to have to work for eight weeks and you're going to have to spend, you know, four hours every week not doing things that you like. And you're going to have to, you know, sit back in the corner. And you have to work and you're going to, it's going to be hard and you're going to have to strengthen your shoulder back up through physical therapy. It's going to take you eight weeks and it's going to cost you whatever, 800 bucks. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And over here, we've got you can have surgery tomorrow. Right. And it'll fix your problem. And insurance is going to pay for all of it. And all you have to do is pay, you know, your five hundred dollar deductible, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And so over here, it's like, oh, well, now it's cheaper and it's faster, yeah. And I don't have to worry about it, and I don't have to do any work, right? And so it's, that's when you start getting to that point. It's like what we're fighting against, you know, as a gym. It's like, well, you know, the right thing is to teach you how to eat and to teach you how to exercise and learn how to do the process of coming in and exercising four to five days a week and eating healthy, and like, you know, it's gonna be over here, and then it's like. Well, no, I can take a cleansing shake and I will lose weight, right? And it's like (laughs) it's instant, and I can do it, and it costs me six bucks and all this stuff. And so, you know, it's it's been. I love the the culture, the community. It's like almost to a point where now, Maria and I talk about all the time. We're like we're tainted to normalcy because we're surrounded by people who do have that work ethic too be able to make the the right choices, which a lot of times is not the easier path, but the harder path. Um, but I think a lot of times ultimately the the right path. And
1: yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I look at people in my own family that have had some injuries lately, and um, you know, they know that to get better, it requires active participation. Yeah. It's not just going to be a, a pill or sitting around not doing anything. You know Nathan had his back issue. He saw Jenny a number of times. He was doing physical therapy on his own yeah. and slowly nursed that thing along to the point where he's able to to work out again. And then you look at Catherine and she's had some some hip issues yep. and she's got some asymmetry in her strength and she knows that's affecting her running. Yep. So she doesn't just lament it, go, oh, well, this is you know, just the way it is. We're going to get better. Yep. Or is there a surgeon who's going to be able to cut my hip and make? So she's you know she the 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 remedy that you and Andy prescribed for her Yeah. Um, she was is doing it she actually you know, has a stress fracture in her foot that limited her a little yeah. bit but you know, she was committed and she does it I mean she does what is prescribed she's very good about yeah. that and I think we are a lot in our community a lot of people do
0: that well and so let's talk about Catherine because Catherine a, 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 has been a fantastic addition to our community thanks to you um, and she really I'm very selective um, you know who who I choose to, you know, take on as, as, you know, one-on-one clients at this point. I just don't, uh, it's not the best time value for me in terms of, you know, making sure. And obviously I want to make sure that, you know, my coaches are, are, um, you know, able to earn an income and a living and stuff. But, um, but Catherine really impressed me during the squat cycle. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've, I've ever seen somebody, follow everything down to the letter. And really, I think it started last year, probably with the Whole Life Challenge, mm-hmm. um, with flexibility. And, I mean, she made some crazy gains in flexibility, which is is awesome to see. Um, but the, the squat cycle was, I mean, and her improvement was incredible. And it was mechanical, it was positional, it was strength, it was mindset, honestly. Like, I don't think if we talked to her before squat cycle that she would have said, you know, I really like heavy squats. I don't think that's who she was, mm-hmm. and by the end, it's like she couldn't get enough. She loved it. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, it's I think it's cool. You know, tell me a little bit about like what her mindset, um, you know, is, and then I want to ask you another question. But we'll just say she's that. Uh,
1: she loves she loves structure. Yeah. So she came. She comes from a uh, endurance background. She played a number of sports when she was in high school, but she really loved running, swimming, biking, doing triathlons, and which I think one of the things she liked, in addition to the fact that it burned a lot of calories and let her eat a lot of food, yeah. it was on Monday you are doing this, yep. and on Tuesday you are doing this, and yep. she can plan it, and she really she really thrives. In that type of environment where she has structure I think that's why she really liked the squat cycle she knew that squatting is something she needed to work on Um, and the squat cycle was very regimented which she does well with if she doesn't have that kind of structure she feels a little bit lost that's been that's been great for her Uh, she's an incredibly disciplined and, uh, and hardworking person in a number of not just in her health and fitness you know she she does log her all of her food and she has goals that she needs to achieve for the day and she will she will achieve them yeah um but just even in her professional life you know she's um, she's,
0: she's unbelievably like sharp i didn't really she is understand to the degree until we had met with you know Dave from O2 and kind of started talking about that but yes. um but man like it's <laughs> she's just It's, it's so impressive to me. I love being able to see like every now and again, I've never really seen you in a professional setting, but I've heard through my cousin. Um, And, uh, you know, and I think that's kind of, I've seen like, you know, Jason Bourne, I've seen a couple of the attorneys and stuff I've seen uh, in their professional lives. Um, it's cool for me to get to see that. Uh, but man, when I saw Catherine, I was just like, I go, God, like she's impressive. She's really impressive. She's very bright.
1: Yep. Um, she works with startups all the time. Yeah. So working with Dave, that's a natural extension of what she does. Yeah. And yeah, she's she's brilliant. Yeah. There's no question about
0: it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, and so you guys met at Johnson Johnson. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, um, and then, how long you guys have been together now? Probably what two and a half years. About two. Two. Yeah. And we half. We, yeah, two. we
1: we got married in February. now, yeah. So what? About seven eight months now. Yeah. Yeah. Got married at Valley Forge. Yeah and uh she paris was a little bit of a honeymoon it's kind of a yeah. work yeah a work honeymoon so I, I had to do some work while i was there but we we had an opportunity to spend some time together
0: and her family family's from valley ford area right, close to okay yeah so yeah.
1: philadelphia suburb okay. not far from where my parents live oh nice it's awesome. convenient yeah.
0: yeah that's very cool and um and how you know i know her and catherine or her and uh, julia kind of get along famously um and i feel like they've uh they've really got kind of a special and a unique relationship not to speak that Nathan doesn't, but, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, tell me like how cool, I guess it's, it's awesome for me to see, you know, Julia be able to grow up and be able to have, you know, such a, a strong, you know, strong woman in terms of, um, you know, intelligence and discipline mm-hmm. with Catherine and then kind of on that other end to have kind of like a um, you know a Maria and an mm-hmm. Amanda and some of the like maybe a little bit younger and a little bit more uh i guess you'd say social right mm-hmm. like i always think of Ka- Catherine's pretty dialed in not that Catherine's not yeah. social and yeah. very fun and has a, has an incredible smile and all that stuff but um, but i always kind of think about like you know, as Catherine is to dialed in, Maria is to kind of quirkiness and yeah. and socialism, yeah. so, or being social. So, yeah. um, so kind of tell me a little bit, do you, do you really, like, was that a, a key deciding factor for you? Like, is that something that was really important for you, for Julia and Catherine to kind of have that kind of a relationship? And
1: Yeah, I don't know that I ever thought thought about that. Yeah. Um, I do know that from really the moment they met each other, they... We're pretty comfortable with with each other. Yeah. Quickly. Um, now they're. I mean, they just get along so well. Yeah. They. Um, when we sit and you know, for watching TV or something, Julia is practically laying on top of Catherine. Yeah. We have a lot of fun you know when we're together when when the kids are over and um, but but yeah they get along great and and I will say that um, as great as Catherine is with Julia she's the same with Nathan you know yeah. they I think that we become a really nice unit yeah um there's challenges to that to the stepmom stepkids yeah. relationship that are things that we're still trying to navigate yeah um you know disciplining kids you know how does that work you yeah. know how do you how do you maintain some authority but without overstepping it's yeah. These are things that I just never really recognized, and yeah. and, and I think Catherine has articulated them to me yeah. over the last year or so. Yeah. How how challenging those things can be, and um, I can see it from her perspective how it can be hard. Yeah. But um, but overall, you know, uh, Catherine loves them, and they love her. Yeah. She's the one. Like Nathan's learning how to drive. He's driven Catherine's car more than anyone else with Catherine in the passenger seat, teaching yeah. him how to drive. Yeah. You know, Julia needs help with her math. They don't come to me. Yeah, I don't know. They they, they take it to you Kathy. Know, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. so it's, uh, it's just, it's been, it's been great getting this, this new unit to fuse into yeah. one family. So that's
0: been That's really cool. Um, all right, so this is going to be a good one for you because I feel like you, you've got a, a good thumb on this. So. Dublin restaurants. So you're gonna take Catherine mm-hmm. out, all right? Let's get uh, let's get a fun jeans and a t shirt evening. Dublin restaurants. or we just well, we can say Columbus, right? I always okay. tell people I, I like to do some Dublin ones, but then everybody just says Tucci's. So then, so we can move on from that now. Um, but if I were gonna say D- a Dublin restaurant, the one that I've liked lately is the Rail. Yeah, I've never been there. So oh, the Rail
1: it. is on France Road. Okay, it's. Um, it's pretty new. I don't think it's been open for a year yet. Yeah, and it's just um, it's just a good burger place. Interesting. It's yeah. a, it's a lot like Flipside. Oh, but okay. it's Just not as far. Yeah, yeah. And so I love the room. Yeah. And Catherine, I've been there several times. They've, they've got a pretty nice bar. Yeah. Um, they don't take reservations, and uh, if you if you get there around seven o'clock on Saturday, you're gonna wait. Yeah. For a while, so I recommend going in, putting your name in, and. Yeah. Figuring out something else to do <laughs> for the next hour, yeah. But I really like that restaurant in terms of a Dublin restaurant. Yeah. Um, let me think. Uh,
0: where else in Dublin? Tucci's.
1: I mean, Tucci's is good, but it's yeah. uh, you know, it's a bit just been around for a while. Yeah, it has it's been. A, yeah, for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah. Um, um, what about Columbus? If you're gonna go bigger, if you, or maybe even like nicer. The refectory. The refectory, yeah. <laughs> yeah have you been cool. there? I have. So yeah. the refectory is where I had like my senior year prom, mm-hmm. and that's the only time I've ever been. Um, yeah, the refectory. And I don't think I've been back since.
1: The food is really good. Yeah. Yeah, the, f- the food is really good. If I was going to think of something a little bit more... Um, I have to think about it a little bit. Like a little bit more modern, Yeah, uh, less stuffy.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. you took us to NADA that one time. I know you Nada, like NADA. Yeah. 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 NADA is really good. That's mm-hmm. one of my dad's favorite place. He always goes down there. Um, yeah, I'm always, I'm always interested. The rail is awesome though. I mean, I've never even heard of it. So I love, I, that's, that's why I like to do this. I like to see if you can get a couple of people. We have a lot of people in the community, especially now that I listen to the podcast. Uh, that you know are newer to Dublin, um, you know new couples. May they maybe just moved here, maybe from inside Columbus, maybe from outside of Columbus, and you know they're newer to the area. So I think it's always fun for people to kind of come up with some unique, uh, different kind of thoughts. About the it. other one
1: I is Hudson Twenty Nine. Oh well, Do you know I, Hudson yeah, 29? Hudson Twenty Nine is incredible. Yeah. I love. Hudson Catherine and I've been there. Yeah. Count. I don't know three three times. Today. Yeah. It's uh, the first time we went, we went got a drink. We're sitting outside and the smoke alarm. Or, f- or the g- the garage alarm went off, oh, wow. and it was just like. They had to close the place down on the oh, really? You couldn't talk. It went on for, I would, I would say, 15, 20 minutes. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, but that's a great restaurant. Yeah. Hudson
0: 29 is great. Yeah. Hudson 29, then I always think Milestone 229 is also one of my favorite ones. Oh, I don't there. know that one. Yeah. So that's right down on on the river, like right across from like the, the state house or the state courthouse. Oh, okay. And um, and it's right on the river. If you get like a nice night, like in the evening, you get a good sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a cool, it's a really cool atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, they have some of the best food. I think that's Clark and Kenzie's. Favorite spot. It's um, it's really, really good. So it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of smaller. Like uh, you know, I, I don't think we've ever really fought. They do take reservations. I don't think we've ever really fought to get in. Um, but it does like every time you're there, it's like every table is completely full. So, um, and I think it's a Cameron Mitchell restaurant. So they're pretty good. Seems like they're
1: all Cameron Mitchell restaurants. I know,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. One of my 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 parents. Uh, we talk about one of their one of their big. Um, you know, regrets, I think, is they had an opportunity, I think, to invest early in in Cameron Mitchell restaurants. And I think they had decided to pass. And I'm guessing because they probably had like a three and a four year old or something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're try- probably trying to figure all that out. But um, but I'm always like, Dad, I mean, we could be eating at all these restaurants for free every right. night. Like, come That's on, right. man. <laughs> you got to see the future for that. So That's right. I um, mean, if,
1: if only we could go back and, and change some decisions, you know, some people that That gave up their Apple stock thirty years ago. Yeah, for sure. How much money? Yeah, 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 or
0: Amazon. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I was talking to Marie about that the other day. So, Um, awesome. Yeah, I think we covered everything uh, that we wanted to, right? This was great. Yeah, Yeah. no, I really enjoy it. Yeah, Yeah. thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it, man.
1: Awesome. Okay.